If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When did schooling become compulsory? How far did education differ between girls and boys? And why does the British school year start in September? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Susanna Wright answers your questions on the history of British schools. As always with this series, the questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media channels. Susanna was joined in conversation by Emma Slattery-Williams. So in Britain, when do we first see what we would recognise as a school? I think the thing that's kind of most recognisable as a school in the way that we understand it now, as in classrooms with teachers and pupils within a building and separate from a domestic home, might have been the old, the very old kind of grammar schools. So we start to get those from the 500s onwards. Not many of them but a few of them set up over the next um, few hundred years. So actually quite a long time ago, 
we get something that's recognisable. It's not recognisable in all ways, as in they were more that they're a wider age range than you'd currently see in a school classroom, and that we'd recognise over the last couple of hundred years as a feature of the school classroom. Um, they're also restricted to very very few, and all males. So again, that's the difference from the current school, but. Yeah, there might there, there might be a few individual kind of models of alternatives. I know that they're um, the first school in China even came before that, but that's the those are the kind of early origins that we know about of something that we recognise as a school. What were these sort of grammar schools? Then, when did the grammar school start being a thing that most children went to? Okay, so that happened quite a lot later. Um, the number of grammar schools um, by the time you got to, you know, kind of Shakespeare's time, the Tudors, the Stuarts, you're getting into the um, 1600s, um, you did start to get more middle class children, again, mainly boys, going to these um, grammar schools. But even then, a lot of um, elite children were educated in the home by a tutor or by um, or by a governess. So it's by no means all children um, even of that sort of social group that attended at that time. And um, more children went to school, um, I'd say sort of, it was the 19th century that you started to see some sort of schooling spreading across most social groups. You sort of sort of see a gradual increase in between times and all these things, of course, there were ups and downs behind gradual increases and differences Um locally and regionally. But it wasn't till the 19th century, probably, that you saw most children go to school. What were they being taught? Okay, so initially in the grammar schools, there was quite a lot that was kind of scripturally based. So these were all originally kind of religious um, foundations. And you even find by, um, you know, as late as the 19th century, in some of the successor institutions to the original ones, a lot of them ended up kind of with Anglican clergy as um, headmasters and teachers so that kind of continue it so the religious foundations did continue for many many um years for some of them um they were taught literature um there was emphasis on the classics as well so you are talking about a sort of elite um sort of education this isn't the same as what you know um primary school or the literacy and numeracy that would come in in different forms of schools for um, other people. Um, by the 19th century, you started to get more sort of scientific sort of um, education as well coming through in those institutions. So you just touched on it a bit there. Um, how much of a role has the church had in education in Britain? A lot over the years. And you still see the legacy of some of those kind of very early foundations today. Whereas in um, a number of other countries, you've got a fairly complete sort of separation of church and state in education systems. It's not to say there aren't church schools, but they are very much apart from the state system in a lot of countries. And you don't get religious education necessarily in a in a state school system. Whereas um, now in Britain, you have um, you still have a lot of church schools where there's some church funding, some church um, input into staffing. You have religious education being the only compulsory subject, actually, despite the national curriculum kind of guiding content for the rest of um, 
education. And um, that's a very distinctive um, pattern. There's a lot of influence, I think, of, um, of the church, whether it has an influence on people's beliefs or their practice of church attendance is a different matter. But in terms of administrating, uh, administering education and funding education and input into curriculum and so on, if you look internationally, I think the church has a lot of input still in this country. So you mentioned there kind of the Tudor period, time of Shakespeare. If we kind of focus on that period onwards, for the children who weren't, you know, on the, the higher classes, the upper classes, would they have had any sort of education at home, poorer children? It's very hard to tell what happened sort of definitively because when you get records, they often tend to follow institutions and kind of formal institutions or they follow the sort of records that um, go with levels of literacy and time and leisure that the poorest people of the population wouldn't wouldn't have. So my caveat there is... Um, that we're working with kind of limited source material, basically. Um, but yeah, from the 1700s onwards, there are um, different models that emerged. So first of all, you had what got known as dame schools, which um, emerged in Britain, um, but also other parts of the British Empire. Um, they, these were sometimes also known as kind of private venture schools. Um the simplest model of them could be literally someone teaching basic literacy to people in their front room. Um, an untrained teacher, um, the arrangement would typically be part childcare. That was definitely part of it. They might get the children there also to kind of help out in the, in the home a bit, so to do their bit of work as well. Um, they might get some scriptural knowledge as well, but that was kind of focused, um, that sort of education was focused fairly heavily on basic literacy and, um, and numeracy. And um, these same schools got quite, um, they got quite a bad reputation by the, um, by the mid 19th century. And perhaps a little bit unfairly because um, by that stage, there was actually kind of quite a range within this private venture school category. Um, so some of them were this kind of one room in a house with an untrained um, teacher for a little bit of money, um, teaching basic literacy and numeracy and maybe getting a bit of help in the house on the side from it. And you had the equivalent going on maybe in some small shops and workshops as well. And this was all for a kind of small fee, but with a low fee maybe kind of recognising the informality of the, um, of the arrangement. Um, you had much more organised private venture schools as well, which were more kind of community-led, community-driven had more of a structure and charge charge fees perhaps a little bit higher. And um, by the time you had um, state education sort of emerging to a greater extent after the 1830s, and definitely by the 1860s, there were um, commissions, investigations about the state of education, looking for... Um, what was happening, whether it was adequate, whether something else needed to be um, to be done. Um, <clears throat> the dame schools, as they were labelled um, by most people, got a very bad. Um, they, they got a roasting. They um, they were all kind of tarred with the same um, 
with the same brush in these sorts of reports as universally inadequate. And of course, there were um, exceptions. And I think it was the context of the information that was being gathered, which led those characteristics come out. So for people investigating the need for a mass state um, state system, they were kind of almost looking for um, inadequacies in what was um, already there. So there was that. And then for the very for, poor, um, they might have been looking for something that had no fees attached at all. And so in the very early years of the 19th century, you had the first ragged schools um, emerging, um, which were really looking for kind of larger classes in a public space of some sort. Again, with a focus on literacy, numeracy and um, scripture. In that, in that way, the kind of basic curriculum of the ragged school was fairly parallel to the dame school. But attached to that, you had a kind of hub of what we'd now call kind of welfare services. So things like, you know, clothing exchanges, saving banks, food, food provision, those sorts of things that the attendees would um, very much need. Um, but yeah, they were free. They were also staffed by volunteers and in whatever premises people could get their hands on. And they were quite often in poor areas of London and other large towns and cities. So the actual premises in, in those sorts of areas, um, you know, were affected by that particular situation. They weren't nice, good premises. And again, staffed by volunteers. And attendance wasn't compulsory at that stage. So there was a bit of a sense of attendees kind of coming and going. Um, presumably as suited their family circumstances. A lot of them would have had to work. Was it a bit of a post-code lottery then? So uh, if you happen to live in an area where there was, say, a benevolent wealthy landowner or a benevolent um, employer, they might provide provide a school for the children of their employers. But in the next town, that might not have been the case. Yes, there was definitely an aspect of that. So you did have some employers that provided schools, um, under the 1830s um, Factory Acts and some of the other employment legislation of that period, um, there was a requirement to provide some sort of education for child labour. And I think some some employers did that better um, than others did and made better provision for it and kinder provision. So there was a lottery. Um, I think there often is when you're relying on charitable provision. And that was one of the arguments for greater state intervention and funding um, to actually try to make more provision available for more people in a more standardised way. So Marina's asked, when when was schooling made compulsory um, and and why? Okay, so um, I'll take the English answer. You get slightly different dates for the different um, home nations. And I believe the English answer also applies to Wales. Um, The 1870 Education Act is um, kind of credited as the act that provided mass elementary education. And and the aim of that was to actually provide a school place for children up to the age of 10 initially, ages 5 to 10. And to say that should be available for all children up to 5 and 10. So there wasn't this um, idea of a lottery as to whether there was a church school already in the village or there was an employer foundation or um, whatever kind of ragged school or dame school provision had been um, had been available, although that was kind of decreasing a bit by 
by the 1870s. Um, attendance actually became compulsory in 1880. And I think part of the rationale for um, making attendance compulsory was was um, at least the kind of mainstream narrative, if you take the kind of, kind of government line on it, was to actually get people into school when their families didn't want them to necessarily go. So you had a situation in the um, 1870s where school places were available. And this was a new situation in some areas of that kind of firm school place that you're expected to attend every day, um, replacing maybe some of the more fluid arrangements around ragged schools and dame schools, which might have been there. And fees were required as well for elementary schools. Um, some charged more, some charged a bit less, but for the poorest families, this was actually quite a um, quite a factor. So making attendance compulsory was really to, again, try to iron out this situation and allegedly to give the benefits of education to those who needed it. Um, this was presented often as quite a kind of beneficent thing. You were giving people the chances for better employment. You were giving them chances to better themselves in lives through more, um, sort of morally better themselves as well as um, through knowledge. Um, you could see it as a different in a different way. The groups who schooling extended to in the 1870s were groups who maybe hadn't come under state surveillance in quite the same way um, beforehand. So you could take a different view on it and actually say this was a chance for the state to actually kind of view poor families who might be seen as those who could kind of create trouble, particularly in... Um, urban area where the kind of massive urban poor um it you know it troubled people from the um from the time of the French Revolution onwards really this kind of massive people what what would happen to them could you get a lot of social unrest and um and so on so you had that side behind it um as well and obviously the kind of economic argument that was coming through that Britain's ec economic um competitiveness um needed um a workforce who were trained enough and educated enough. And um, I think the final argument that was raised again, um, you could question how far there was a causal link, um, was about the extension of the franchise that you needed to extend. Um, if you extended the franchise, you needed people who could make informed um, decisions about who should um, be in government. Um, of course, the franchise wasn't extended to many of the groups involved in elementary schooling until a later date. But, yeah, there probably was some connection with that sort of um, argument. All of those things come together. And, again, as I've, as I've suggested, I think there were more slight, slightly ulterior motives as well. So did this differ in other parts of Britain then? I think possibly the kind of concern with urban unrest might have been more prevalent in England because there are more big cities. But in particular parts of, you know, in the big cities of Scotland, you'd and in places like Cardiff in Wales, you'd find similar sort of debates um, going on. Um, so I think that I think the particular re, um, this is my take on it, of course, and others may um, disagree who are more expert in um, Scottish education, Welsh Welsh education, um, Northern Irish um, education. 
Um, but I say the kind of root debates are probably not drastically different in in the four countries. The structures um, that emerged did have some differences. And yeah, you, you might want to ask about that a bit later, maybe. So we've had a lot of questions about the difference between um, educational girls and boys. You You said earlier that boys were educated earlier than girls were. When did this change? What was the what was the rationale for not not educating girls? I'll take it when it changed um, first. This was on a kind of mass scale. It was kind of 18th century and on a larger scale into the 19th century. That when you had provision in these local areas, you know, the ragged schools, the dame schools, um, all of those sort of things, they were usually open to boys and um, and girls. So it was really when institutions started catering for a wider set of social groups, the boys and girls were included um, in the mix, at least in theory, um, education offered to boys and girls. Whether it was taken up equally by boys and girls is a different matter. And there is research that shows that kind of family attitudes um, right to the end of the 19th century and in the days of compulsory school attendance favoured boys attending school over and above girls. So girls were more likely to be drawn out and taken out of school, either because the family couldn't afford them going or because they were needed at home to help out if the family was struggling with logistics or um, taking care of other children and um, and so on. So, yeah, those, there's what... There's what was available in theory and what sometimes happened um, in practice. Um, I think there were um, attitudes which were um, quite gendered about what boys and girls would get out of um, education and an advanced um, an advanced secondary schooling, which for many years was available to relatively few, was seen to prepare for a certain form of employment or public life, which was then associated more with um, men than women. So some of, yeah, so some of the gender expectations arose from what the schooling was expected to actually result in. So if the if it was going to be men who went into those advanced forms of work and women weren't likely to, then that would affect um, attitudes to. Um, schooling and provision over many centuries um boys were favored partly because um some of the earlier foundations were associated as well with with, with monasteries with um that sort of life and that was um, more a male thing but of course there are there's evidence of the training of females in nunneries as well but that there are more monasteries than nunneries and um yeah but yeah Expectations of different lives after school, I think, was a big um, was a big factor, as well as assumptions that um, girls might end up um, doing more in a domestic sphere in later life, which they wouldn't necessarily need school for. That's not saying they wouldn't need education in a wider in a wider sense. So presumably, girls and boys were se- segregated then because they would have been t- been taught different things. Girls would be taught more kind of domestic duties. Mm-hmm. There was um, a lot of segregation of um, of schools, certainly secondary schools, um, right up until the 1950s, 60s, were mostly single single sex. 
And um, it's hard to tell whether that was just following kind of the building of new schools on top of what what already existed, which were all single sex, or whether it was um, actually deliberately reflecting kind of ideas of a different education being um, being valuable. There were definitely differences in um, in subject matters. So I've um, girls' school, um, evening and secondary schools for girls, which in the 19th century and kind of up, up till 1940 would have been for a relatively small proportion. Um, there was kind of domestic domestic science. A few schools kind of actually standing out against this and saying, no, actually, we want to be as academically rigorous and teach similar things to the boys' schools. But they were making a kind of definite point of that, suggesting an underlying difference that they were kind of fighting um, in expectations that they were fighting against. Um, the Yeah, for a long time, a focus um, for boys being... Um, subjects if you're looking at vocational subjects ones that might prepare them for um clerical work for design work for woodwork crafts and those sorts of um trades so um that sort of segregation in curriculum offer um happened for many years it was reinforced sometimes by schools being for boys and for girls particularly in the secondary sector in in the kind of primary schools that were set up in the 19th century, you were less likely to find one that was purely single sex. They'd, they'd be more likely to cater for a kind of community area, maybe kind of the fee-paying ones, the, the you know the higher level fee-paying ones are more likely to be secondary single sex. But the ones that catered for a, for a um, communal area, even then you might find a girls' department a boys' department, and actually quite a lot of separate teaching and separate socialising going on. And um, schools, even if you go to one now, um, the school that my um, children go to, you can see the separate in- entrances to the school for girls, boys and infants, with girls, boys and infants written above. And you've got the uh, 2020 part of the school attached to the 1890 part of the School and a lot of schools in Britain are like that. They kind of just gradually kind of build up over the years. So you see the um, legacy of um, of some of these. They they all walk in through the infants' entrance, but at that time it would have been just the infants who did it. And yeah, now they mix them together, but that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, and and so, so a lot of primary schools kind of organise the segregation that way. So today in Britain, you're in full-time education from from four till 18 now isn't it that's it yeah when schooling became compulsory how old how old were children expected to stay in school and when did that gradually change okay so the originally it was expected to um children expected to stay in school till 10 then that kind of got raised to 12 to 14 after um, it was definitely 14 by 1918. And you get kind of quite a lot of hidden debates behind the scenes about when do you make it higher. So even in 1918, there were claims that you should raise it higher than 14, try and go to 15, 16, and so on. Um, the raising till 15 in 1947 was kind of mooted from the 19... Definitely from the 1930s, even before that. And... Um, happened in 1947 there was a bit of a delay because of the second world um world war effectively when things like that just couldn't happen 
And then it took till the 1970s for it to go up till 16, which is quite a long, a long time again. And then the next raise after that was um, in recent years. So again, quite a long. It's you look internationally at leaving ages, and um, it's um, sometimes feels like it's a little bit kind of later to go up longer. But you sometimes when when you look at the statistics on leaving age, you have to look quite carefully about what that actually mean meant. And sometimes you find there are actually more similarities in practice behind those formal ages than um, than you think. Um, I think an important thing to say is that prior to 1918, there were provisions for actually leaving early or engaging in part-time schooling alongside work if you kind of met a certain level of of, um, schooling at a particular age then you could go part-time or you could leave early you could get the exemption um, certificate and that was um, that was a result of um, people having to earn money for their families and staying on till 14 and not being able to provide money for the family would have been problematic otherwise. Can we talk a bit about teachers now then? How were teachers trained back in the past? And traditionally they've been women and I believe traditionally they had to be unmarried women. When were they allowed to get married? When when were men encouraged to become teachers? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, There have actually always been, um, it depends which sort of school you're looking at, really. So secondary schools, um, when they were predominantly for men, had predominantly male teachers. And secondary schools actually remained the sector over the years, including to the present day, where there's a greater proportion of male male teachers. And it's almost that the female teachers have followed pupil, have followed, you know, female pupils into... Um, secondary schools, either through the single sex um, secondary schools that existed, where it was mostly female staff in a female in a secondary school for for girls, not entirely but mostly, and um, then into um, secondary schools today, which are quite gender mixed typically in their um, teaching makeup. Um, talking about primary schools, they have been predominantly female teachers for many, many years. That's a very long-standing feature um, ever since the 1700s when you've had forms of primary schools. You've had more female teachers than um, male in them. And um, you can make all sorts of assumptions about about why this might be. Um, Some of it might be that... um, the sort of training that secondary schools required for a long time, that was more qualification and a stint at college based than it was for primary schools, where for many years you could go on a kind of apprenticeship type pupil teacher model. And so you can make some assumptions about who might or may not be, owing to their own circumstances, be able to benefit or engage, benefit from or engage in those sorts of um, training activities. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of supply and demand um, thing going on for training as well as for um, for schools. Um, in terms of the primary school workforce, and I think there's a kind of ideological side to it as well. So um, for many years, assumptions that teaching um, 
younger children has some sort of affinities with childcare and with nurturing qualities and so on. And um, typically as well, perhaps career progression and pay prospects being better in secondary than um, than primary. So there might be maybe some drivers out of primary for um, for male teachers. So I think there's a there's a big mix of factors going on. Um, there was never a statement that primary schools should only be for women, but that's what's typically happened. As to the marriage bar, um, there's kind of the inf- there's the formal side of it and the informal side of it. So formally, it um, it came in legislation wise um, after the first world um, first world war. Informally, I think it was kind of practiced in quite a lot of schools. And it ended in um, 1944, I believe it was. Um, funnily enough, with teachers and the BBC and BBC employees being um, included at the same um, at the same time. Um, again, there's what happened. Um, what happened informally? Informally, um, there's evidence that married teachers may have done less well in recruitment practices because they were potentially seen as less reliable than a single teacher um, without family responsibilities might be. And, um, you know, likewise, even during the marriage bar period, plenty of married women managed to get employment as teachers, kind of working around the <laughs> loopholes in the um, in the legislation. This could quite often happen if they were attached to a male teacher in the school. They'd often find employment that way and be useful around the place. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Legally, actually later than you'd think. So 1980s legally. And even now you have some school situations with kind of very special dispensation for certain forms of corporal punishment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Can we talk a bit about the national curriculum? Um, when when was that introduced? Okay, so the national curriculum, um, in fact, the national curriculum that we're still working with now, was introduced um, in the wake of the 1988 um, Education Act. And what the national curriculum did um, was introduced a common kind, kind of common subjects in schools, and it introduced core subjects of English, maths, and science, which should form part of the curriculum for um, all children up to age sixteen. And it retained um, religious instruction as, in fact, the only compulsory subject. So even core subjects aren't compulsory, whereas religious instruction is. It's a strange um, legal position. And other subjects should be taught, but obviously when you come to age 14, some of them can become optional. And the other subjects um, go around arts and um, and humanities and languages. So that's the basic sort of structure. And you've had, yeah, you had citizenship in there for a, for a while, um, now modified a bit to um, fundamental British um, British values. Um, so you have those other kind of areas, and so, so uh, it used to be personal social education, personal social health education, and other letters get um, get added on over the years. But kind of dealing with those various um, health, welfare, moral issues that may not kind of be covered um, else um, elsewhere. So the national curriculum was um, distinct from previous practice in that schools were expected to provide this common offer. Um, Different versions of it over the years have prescribed to a greater or lesser degree the actual content of what's taught and how it should be taught as well, with some specifications being very detailed and others being a um, a bit less so. Um, But this was a change from what went on before, where there was more freedom for teachers to kind of pick their own focus, to work in a more maybe um, project-based way. Um, But thinking of continuity as well as change, there was quite a lot of commonality in the broad areas covered in most primary and secondary schools before and after the national curriculum. The difference was that it was just in, it was just codified and prescribed and teachers and pupils were kind of tested against those um, nationalised benchmarks in a way that um, didn't happen in the same way um, before. Um, I think you could see sort of advantages and disadvantages in the um, 
in a national curriculum. And for a minute, I'll go personal and um, mention what my dad, who was a secondary school teacher, said about kind of pre-national curriculum and post-national curriculum. And he thought that the freedom for teachers that um, that came in the prior in the pre-national curriculum um, environment was um, a mixed blessing. It really suited some teachers to have that sort of freedom. They could run with it. They could do amazing things. They could create a lot. They could really take ownership. Whereas other teachers maybe would have benefited more from a bit more um, in terms of guidelines and prescription. So that's just a reflection that um, the national curriculum at the time got quite a lot of bad press at taking away teacher autonomy and so on. It got possibly good press as a way of potentially levelling up to use current parlance rather than that that was used in 1988 and to ensuring a bit more consistency. But maybe part of that consistency was about what it offered for teachers as well. So Hannah's asked, what was the 11 plus and why is it still used in some places? Okay, so the 11 plus was um, a test introduced um, generally in the late 1940s, um, at a time when secondary schools were introduced for everyone to decide which type of, edge of secondary school they'd go to. So in the final year of primary at age 10 or 11, depending on how old you were at that point in the autumn term, um, a pupil would take the um, 11 plus. It was meant to test their native intelligence on the lines of various kind of verbal, mathematical, spatial and other reasoning um, tests and on the basis of your performance in that you would go to a grammar school which kind of following the trajectory of older grammar schools would be fairly kind of academically um, inclined Um, you would go to a secondary modern or for a few people there was a technical school available for people who that suited but there weren't so many of those um, set up so the idea was that the um, 11 plus result would guide you into one of those with a far greater proportion going to secondary modern than to anything else. Um, it wasn't meant to be pass or fail. At the time, the, what was called the tripartite structure was set up. It wasn't, um, it was noted in government guidance that it wasn't intended as a hierarchy. But of course, what happened in attitude terms was that grammar schools were seen as superior and secondary models moderns were seen as inferior and for a while you couldn't go to university from secondary modern you could only go from grammar school so so it actually had a um, direct impact on future educational opportunities Um, and it wasn't meant to be pass or fail it was meant to result in kind of a funneling to different options but people always talked about pass or fail so that was what it was intended for Um, it started to get Um, quite a a bad press in the 1950s um, for various reasons. Um, It was seen, after a while, evidence emerged that it was actually quite inefficient at doing that sorting. Um, Evidence emerged that it could be coached, even though it was meant to test some sort of innate um, intelligence. And evidence emerged that um, the people who ended up getting into grammar schools were um, associated with a particular socioeconomic groups. So whether intentionally or not, um, it was having an, an effect of creating class 
or maybe not creating, but reinforcing class um, class divides. Um, girls did better typically in 11 plus results, at least in some years, than boys. But their results then had to be kind of um, played around with to ensure that not too many girls went to went to grammar school. So there are all sorts of reasons why it um, became discredited. And a lot of individual accounts of grammar school, of, of education during that period, sort of really see the 11 plus as a defining moment. It was one which kind of segregated families and friendship groups. It's one one which kind of really kind of decided on people's pathways, not just within school, but beyond. Um, so that's just very interesting, the kind of impact that it had on people who, um, who took it at the time. Um, why is it still used by some... Yeah, for, from the 1960s onwards, um, more and more local education authorities moved to a comprehensive school structure where everyone in an area would go to a neighbourhood school. And if there was any academic selection, it would be by streaming or by sets within the school rather than um, by a test for going in. Why is it still used in some areas? We have several local educational law authorities where it's compulsory to take the um, 11 plus, um, one of the ones that's neighbouring where I live in Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, um, does this. Kent does. There are other parts of the country where you can take it in some boroughs. So Slough is an area where you can opt to take the 11 plus. And this happens also in parts of Yorkshire. It's, you know, it's very interesting, the optional 11 plus option that some um, areas um, areas have. Why? Um, there's always a range of um, reasons one of them may be, some, may be that it simply costs a lot in time, money, and lots of other things to change a structure. So some of the reasons might be as basic as, basic as that. Um, grammar schools still have their advocates for providing an opportunity to get a good education, which equals or is similar to that you can get in fee-paying schools for people from poorer backgrounds who wouldn't be able to afford a fee-paying education. So that's one of the rationales for that. Um, obviously, the flip side is the effect that that has on provision in a whole area and on other schools in the area. But, you know, advocates would argue that... you. Um, I live in Oxford, where there are a lot of fee-paying schools. That has a huge impact um, on the other schools around it. Um People would argue that that's no different from a grammar school situation. So, I think those are some of the those are some of the reasons. It does seem very harsh that at age eleven, that was decided if, whether you were clever enough to go to university or not. The, a lot a lot changes between those those years. Absolutely, and I think that was one of those things that got rec- recognised. And during the nineteen fifties. 50s, the opportunity to um, move school at 13 to 14 was introduced. It was found that someone was in the wrong place, according to the um, 11 plus for that reason. But it's a big manoeuvre and a school change may not necessarily have been feasible for for someone, depending on places available or their own family and domestic situation. My parents went to secondary school in the in the seventies, and I think I remember them saying that if you yeah if you weren't at a grammar school, 
you were not encouraged or even maybe able to go to university. So when did when did that change? When did you, you said about kind of the comprehensive state schools? When was anyone able to go to university, depending regardless of what school they yeah. went to? It was really the 50s, 60s that came in. And it's one of those things that it's it's not kind of a law. So it's actually quite difficult to establish precise states when something's a matter of practice and custom. But it was grammar schools that tended to offer the university entrance exams and the school certificates. Um, so once you got public examinations in O-levels and A-levels coming in, in the 50s and 60s, that actually gave um, a wider set of people a means to kind of prove their worth in a different way. So that's the way it happened, but I can't kind of attach a more precise date to it than that because it was a range of factors that came that came together. So Brenda's asked, why does the school year start in September? Very interesting one, because it is strange, isn't it? Why doesn't it start in January? Which would match the calendar year neatly. Um, and the traditional answer is that it's to cater for harvest time. And like a lot of traditional answers, there's actually some truth in it. Um, so when people went to school, families would often need the extra income and local farmers would need the extra hands at, at harvest time to make things, um, make things work. And a school year that starts in September accommodates that. But then why do you have Scotland starting its school year in August? Does it really have an earlier harvest? Not that much earlier. Why And, and Leicestershire, why does Leicestershire always have its um, summer holidays starting and its autumn terms starting um, earlier than other local authorities by two or three, by two or three weeks? So it's, I, I think that's only part of the reason Um Public holidays have also been cited as um, something that um, affects the dates given to school terms. But yeah, this long break in the summer, having one long break is something that a lot of countries do at some point in the year. But why we do it in the summer and then start in September, um, I think I think kind of working around harvest is the biggest explanation, but it doesn't tell all the story um, at all. Um, and we've kind of continued in the same in the same vein, we haven't shifted it. Um, shifts like that, actually, as I, as I mentioned, in terms of schools, they actually cost a lot in terms of time, organisation, people. And so there's an impetus to actually keep things the same, unless there's really good reason to change it. So you end up with a strange situation like um, an academic year starting in September. And so I'm sure all of us still get the back to school feeling <laughs> in September, even whether we go to school or not, and whether we have our own children in school or not. It's um, I always seem to want to buy new stationery yeah, around that sort of yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it kind of becomes part of our cycle. And maybe something similar happens institutionally as well, that once it's there, you can't really sort of see an alternative. Julie's asked about boarding schools. They may be due to Harry Potter and, and other kind of classic British novels. We get the idea they're quite a British tradition. Why, why is that the case? Internationally, there are a higher proportion of boarding schools 
in Britain and there are in um, many other countries and other places which do have a lot of boarding schools um, often have kind of British links or British route or, or imperial um, routes. So the kind of um, northeast of America, there are quite a lot of boarding schools as well. And that's got obvious kind of links to um, Britain um, his- historically. And you've got schools there which are a bit public school-like, going back to that um, public school idea. Um, why boarding? Um, various reasons. It was partly a matter of convenience. Um, in By the 19th century, certainly, there was quite a lot of um, mobility for people of the um, social condition whose children would go to boarding school, maybe, kind of within the empire, going to different jobs, moving moving around. So boarding school could provide a, a mixture of childcare, but also a kind of cultural base, which didn't mean a whole family moving um, internationally. Some families did move, but a lot would keep children at home. And the parents might move around, particularly if the postings weren't for a, des- weren't for a hugely long um, period of time. Um, the convenience aspect kind of went to a different category of boarding schools as well. So certainly in the early 19th century, you had the kind of dark side of boarding schools coming through with people like Charles Dickens. Um, in Nicholas Nickleby, you have the very famous Dotheboys um, Hall and Wackford Squares is the example of... Um, the worst sort of teacher and the worst sort of institution where they'd basically um, guzzle money from families who were sending their children to those boarding schools under slightly desperate conditions. These might be families who had some money, but then they'd hit unemployment or or a death of an adult in the family and so on. And their circumstances would mean they had a child who needed to be provided for, looked after in some in some way, and schools would kind of guzzle up these children and um, the money they provided. And it was a, yeah, this was a fictional account, but Charles Dickens, in preparing and writing Nicholas Nickleby, um, noted that he kind of toured the parts of the north of England incognito to visit a lot of these institutions, find out what people were saying about them when he went to drink in a local pub and that sort of thing. And so he said that the school in the book and Wackford Squeers as a particularly horrible teacher um, were kind of an amalgam of real life places that he that he'd been to, but kind of completely fictionalised together um, when when put together. So that's boarding school for a different sort of convenience factor, but perhaps with the um, perhaps with groups who could be taken advantage um, advantage of. Um, boarding schools as elite education, yes, definitely. Um, boarding schools provide an environment outside the home where a much more immersive experience can happen. And if you follow kind of theories of um, how institutions socialise people, having that more immersive experience of a boarding school means that the influence of the school can be really dominant. The peer group influence can be very dominant. Um, so, yes, it was, it was kind of... A, it was seen as, seen as an elite education partly because of that, 
aspect that it it could do better than a day school in creating the sort of person who would become a future leader and have particular um, characteristics and particular knowledge. Um, Obviously, there's the other side of um, other reasons for boarding schools as well can be particular situations like military families or it can be um, boarding institutions, um, again, from the 19th century onwards, set up for children with special educational needs, which provide a sort of a form of care which can't be provided in their home um, environment. So lots of, actually lots of different reasons for boarding schools, but um, maybe taking the kind of old, old traditional grammar school, which wasn't a residential experience as its root, maybe that became seen as a way of providing for lots of different um lots of different needs but you're right they boarding schools capture their popular imagination from Enid Blyton to Harry Potter they're where children get together to have adventures and you can kind of see why they feature in books like that it can be an exciting environment um yes within school structures but with the ratio of adults to children being far fewer adults than you'd get in a family domestic home environment, providing lots of kind of narrative space for adventures to happen among the children. So, yeah, you know, great for children's books. So Joanna's asked, um, how prevalent was the practice of making left-handed children write with their right hands? And when did this stop happening? Okay, so the practice was, um, it was reasonably prevalent. But I've mentioned before, that in these areas where something was introduced as a kind of practice informally, you don't necessarily have a start date of, uh, you don't have a start date of a law introducing this, but you have evidence in various texts, either personal accounts or educational texts, of it being encouraged. Um, Why? Um, So some of it's going to be practical. In cultures like ours, where you read language from left to right, and you write language from left to right, um, being left-handed makes it more difficult to do these things. And so, you know, to put a um, positive spin on what was on what people might have been trying to do, was it to try to make life easier um, for, for people? Um, there are kind of various cultural um, connotations that go with left-handedness and right-handedness. Um, in Christianity, the right hand of God <laughs> is meant to be where good things happen, with the devil on the other <laughs> on the other side. So you know, maybe things go as deep as that. Um, in other religious and cultural traditions, you have the association of the left hand with hygiene practices. So again you know, with something like that going on behind the um, behind the scenes. So you have these kind of cultural meanings going on as well. Um, when did it die out? Again, hard to establish a, a direct end date. Um, I should also say that this is something that happened in lots and lots of different countries, this um, practice about left-handedness, right-handedness, to some extent or other, whether it was a kind of, almost kind of state-mandated thing, as it might have been in some Soviet um, Soviet conditions or whether it was um, much more informal as it was here. 
by the second half of the 20th century, it was pretty uncommon, generally. How about punishment at school? So the cane, and my mum often talks about um, having a um, chalkboard uh, rubber chucked chucked at her and her friends when they were talking in the back of the classroom. When were teachers uh, not allowed to do that sort of thing anymore? Um, legally, actually, later than you'd think. So 1980s legally. And even, and even now you have some school situations with kind of very special dispensation for certain forms of um, corporal corporal punishment. Not, but they're very kind of they're, they're very contained um, categories and very and and almost almost not used. You know, very much not used. Um, I think um, how common it was is is actually again it's hard to establish. So you have the classic kind of um, image of the Victorian schoolmaster with the cane, don't you? It's even kind of reinforced in some of the primary school and Victorian school days where they'll go to a kind of school magazine or have a day in school where, where a member of staff dresses up with a cope and a cane and a, um, and a moustache. So it kind of becomes associated with this kind of bit of a pantomime villain um, image. Um, it was definitely allowed in the 19th century, but by by the 1890s, only certain categories of teachers were meant to. It's the more senior staff in the school. It wasn't meant to be something that every teacher actually did. And um, records of punishment, schools were meant to keep records. Some probably did more accurately than um, than others. Um, you look at accounts, you know, your mum's given, given an example of, of blackboard rubbers being thrown. There are lots of unofficial accounts of, you know, um, and this is going into the 60s, 70s, um, of use of rulers. Um, I've heard accounts of people I know who've had a private school education where this sort of thing goes into the 80s perhaps more than it did in the state school sector with um, a heavier inspection regime at that um, at that stage. Um but I think it was definitely less common by that stage, and you were more likely to get something like a, back, a blackboard rubber than rather than the rather than the caning. Um, you know, attitudes to it. Um, it obviously completely traumatised some people. Um, it was horrible. I don't think any of us would want to sort of say that public humiliation or physical pain is actually for children is actually a good thing. Um, but as with all of these things. Um, it will have had a different impact on different people. And some teachers might have um, made full use and other teachers right back into the 19th century steered away from it, even when it was expected of them. So you had quite a lot of variety in um, in practice. But yeah, later than you think for when it was legally not allowed, um, but the practice had definitely become a lot more uncommon by then. So this is probably going back a bit now. So when did basic literacy become the norm? So, I, you know, you can't give an exact date on this, but when were the majority of children able to, to read? As a lot, as a lot with these um, questions, it's, hard, it's actually harder to answer than you think. So how do you find the evidence of basic literacy? And a lot of researchers into it have, um, they've either looked at the reading matter that have, that's available for a wide population, so kind of, you know, cheap publications, basically, 
and who they're aimed at and how widespread they are. Or they look at evidence of who can write. And a classic thing has been whether someone writes a signature on a um, court record, a marriage certificate, something, um, something like that. So people actually kind of make assumptions about literacy, actually, from what people can do as adults. And you have to do that before, before there are as many state-funded schools as, you, as, the, as there were, because it's not the kind of evidence of widespread um, literacy on the part of adults. And for children in state-funded um, education, what would you actually rely on? You can rely a bit on inspection results. You can, um, so you start to get more a sense of kind of the, a bit of a sense of the proportion, but um, again, a variety, but um, by 1915, there is the evidence that kind of marriage, on, on marriage certificates of husbands who failed to sign it going down from 32% in around 1840s, in the 1840s, to less than 1% in 1913. And the wives, there's an even bigger change from 48% from, from 48 to um, 1%. So what you can see there is a greater change over those years for women than for men potentially reflecting more provision of schooling for girls, but not completely tracking it. So it's definitely not a kind of cause and a direct cause and effect that schooling led to increased literacy. But you could say that, yeah, the majority of adults were literate on that particular measure. But what that actually meant, it's just about writing. What does that say about the understanding and the reading part of literacy? And if you go on reading, what does that mean about writing? That's... Um, so I think the last question is probably quite a quite a tough one, but I'll, just, I'll give just, it a go. Just the first, just the first thing that comes to your head, just briefly. In your opinion, what has been the most significant change in British education over the last hundred years? I think I'm going to say the move to mass secondary education in 1944, partly because it introduced something like the 11 plus absolutely is a marker kind of introduced people's um life um you know it affects people's life chances from from then on and created huge divisions among friendship groups and so on but you know maybe led to good outcomes for some people who might not have got them um otherwise um but the expectation that everyone would have the same sort of secondary schooling rather than the assumption of a kind of basic schooling for a few people and a different sort of schooling for um, everyone else, which is very much only kind of elementary. That is a very, very significant kind of change in expectations. And we have a lot of debates about the school system still being very, very class-ridden. We have a large, international, in international terms, we have a large um, private fee-paying sector, which you know, which is part of that picture, but not all of it. But you still have more, in theory at least, you have, um, you know, more equal opportunities than you did before 1944. And you can say that with quite a lot of the kind of post-Second World War welfare um, provisions as well. They just provided services and made things available to a wider range of people than they would have been um, beforehand. That was Dr Susanna Wright, Senior Lecturer in Education Studies at Oxford Brookes University. 
Susanna has also previously written a feature on Victorian education for BBC History magazine, which you can find at historyextra.com forward slash Victorian hyphen schools. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.